Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 24. This is a really special one for me personally, since I get to talk to my childhood best friend about culture, and ultimately about growth. And to be fair, we've both done a lot of growing up since we met in the sandbox in 1995. These days, Alexis Nelson is social media manager at Bark. She's also creator of Black Forager, where she makes beautiful, educational, and entertaining content about foraging and cooking delicious food, as well as about the history of foraging laws where they intersect with race, class, and privilege. Alexis was named a member of TikTok's inaugural class of Black Trailblazers last month, and you can find her work on Instagram and Facebook. Her handle there is at Black Forager, or TikTok. There she is, at Alexis Nicole. One more thing. If you'd like to, you can support us at patreon.com slash the extra half. It really helps us keep the momentum going with this podcast. And on that note, we'd like to thank one of our newest supporters, Kyung Suk Langley. Thanks so much, Kyung Suk. It means a lot to us here at the extra half. And without further ado, here's the conversation. Hi, Alexis. Hello, Natanya. How are you? I am. I'm doing all right. It's very cold here, but uh, I'm talking to you and (laughs) Donald Trump is no longer the president. So you take wins where you can get them. (laughs) Totally. I can completely relate. Well, let's get right into it. When people ask you where you're from, what's the short answer? What's the long answer? And what do you usually tell people? Uh, Short answer is I am from Cincinnati, Ohio, and I live in Columbus, Ohio. The long answer is I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. I spent a large portion of the first half of my life in Massachusetts uh, and Ohio going back and forth. (laughs) Uh, And now, yes, I am here, still in Ohio somehow, which I promised myself I wouldn't be, (laughs) but I'm actually pretty happy to still be here. Uh, not a whole lot of complaints. And what about your parents? Where are your parents from? And where is your family from? Going back a couple of generations. My mother was born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, her mother before her was born in Onset, Massachusetts, which is a small village in Cape Cod. And her parents emigrated from Cape Verde, which is a small grouping of islands off the northwest coast of Africa. Uh, My mom's dad was also born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts. You have to go all the way back to the 1600s to when his ancestors emigrated to the United States. And we recently found out this year, well, this past year, they also emigrated from Cape Verde. So we, my mom is just through and through Cape Verdean. Uh, my dad was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, just like I was. Um, but his father comes from the South, from Mississippi. And his mother, I believe, comes from clo- somewhere along the Pennsylvania, New York border, if I remember correctly. She passed away when he was still in high school. Um, So I personally never got to meet her and ask her a zillion questions, as I am often want to do. (laughs) That's remarkable that you're able to trace your family to the 1600s. I've been trying my hand at genealogy, and I can't get before the 1800s. Wow. It is. It's so hard. And honestly, 
Uh, I, you know, try very hard not to take for granted the fact that the generation before me on my mom's side of the family, a lot of her cousins did a ton of work uh, compiling old records, you know, marriage licenses, land owning records. You know, I also recently found out that my mom's paternal side of the family had been owning land and like farming since the early 1700s, which is pretty wild for people of color, even in New England. Uh, But it's, it's a labor because I've now been diving in trying to find things about my dad's side of the family. And it doesn't help that our last name is Nelson. So many people's last name is Nelson, Um, you know, because slavery does that. (laughs) to a lot of black families. And I mean, and that's the other thing, my mom's side of the family never enslaved, didn't really have to deal with that at all. You know, with her mom's side of the family not arriving in the United States until after the eradication of slavery. Um, And her dad's side of the family just being pretty well-to-do, being very early military members back in the Revolutionary War, Um, and kind of being afforded a degree of luxury and privilege that a lot of people of color were not given in the United States at that time. And then you go to my dad's side of the family, and my dad traces his roots through um, enslaved peoples in the South and through um, Native American folks further up North. And those are two histories that have been like so thoroughly decimated. just by relocation, um, by not keeping clear enough records, uh, which is really, it's really heartbreaking. Um, I have uh, so much envy for people who can trace their families back and through the times of slavery. Uh, And I have a very real worry and fear that that's not something that I'll ever be able to do. Yes. We were talking in a previous episode to Shano Peblo, whose mother is Black American and whose father is Nigerian, from Nigeria. And he was telling me that he felt like that was one of the things that really made him who he was and allowed him and his sisters to do really well because he felt like he always had this knowledge of who he was. And it's actually interesting. His story is a little bit um, complex. He was very, very conservative. And then a little bit later in life, he changed political ideologies. And he felt like at that point, it was really a source of pride, a source of pride that even he didn't understand to what extent it's not possible for so many Black Americans to have this strong identity. And I remember thinking with you when we were children, um, when we were probably five or six, I remember you telling me, and I don't remember his name, you have to tell me his name, but you were saying my great, 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 great grandfather. <laughs> and I just thought it was so remarkable. And you knew his name. And I think you had a picture also, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, that is my great <laughs> times eight uh, grandfather. <laughs> his name is Barzelia Lou. And he <laughs> fought in the Revolutionary War. He was a fife, uh, played the flute, his whole family was musical. And uh, we even have written records of him from George Washington uh, describing him as being a very tall. So we're, <laughs> wow. for, for that, we are like so lucky that we had someone who was very prominent in American history. And I mean, not prominent in, you know, founding fathers kind of way, but prominent enough 
that folks saw an interest in keeping up with what his family was doing and keeping track of those records. Um, And that's been fantastic because it really does kind of give you an anchoring to certain places. Um, It really solidifies this idea of this identity that you're carrying with you through the generations. And it's so interesting that now as I've gotten a little bit older and done a lot more diving into my mom's side of the family, um, it almost shines a light on how empty that book of knowledge is from my dad's side of the family. And I don't know, it makes me kind of feel wayward all over again. You know, it's to have half of your genealogy be so known (laughs) and then to have the other half of it. I honestly, like, I can't find further back than my grandparents. Like, I can't find further back than my dad's mom and dad. Um, It gets that fraught that quickly. Yeah, I completely understand. And then... The other thing is that for both sides of your family, there's a lot of time of flattening into being Black America, whereas political analysts often talked about the Black American vote and things like that. And trends describing this really, really diverse group of people. And I feel like with you, it's really incredible how you embody several different cross sections of this group of people that was never meant to be a group of people, but became that way because of the ramifications of the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah, it's it's very wild to think about and wild and kind of like the most negative connotation that there are all of these people who had all of these very intricate languages, customs that have all, as you said, just been flattened into what a lot of folks on the outside see as a very unified experience. Because, like, I would go as far as to say the Cape Verdean experience in Boston and in a lot of New England as a whole, just from what I've witnessed myself, kind of more closely mirrors the way you see a lot of Latinx groups moving Mm. to those kind of bigger coastal cities and starting to integrate their way into those cities and those cultures. Um, So to have all of it kind of, like, smushed into this unified black experience is is weird because like you know my grandparents and on that you know my grandmother on my mom's side grew up speaking like a ton of Cape Verdean uh, Creole which is a combination of some West African languages yes but also a lot of Portuguese uh, just because Cape Verde belonged to Portugal until almost the 80s. Like, they didn't even become a free state until 1979. Like, my mom was a fully realized adult when that change happened, having to go from being like, this is Portuguese heritage by means of uh, Cape Verde to being like, oh, no, Cape Verdean. Um, so it's always really interesting to be like, well, I get to check the same box <laughs> as everybody else who traces their roots to this huge swath of area <laughs> of the planet. Even though our ancestors maybe didn't have a whole lot in common. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And not just that, but they, they didn't meet. No. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that I was hoping to do with you today and that I've always really wanted to have the chance to do is to unpack a little bit in terms of 
Well, we can start with the Cape Verdean culture that we were just talking about, your mom's culture. What kinds of things have stayed with you today and in your childhood that you can really trace to that cultural influence? And for those of us who maybe don't know so much, could you give a little bit of context? So it was a Portuguese colony. Cape Verde, much like the, um, the Azores, were both Portuguese island colonies uh, that were very important for crossing the Atlantic just because you, you, know, you want a place to be able to stop while you were on your way crossing a very large body of water. Um, but I do believe that Cape Verde benefited a lot from its proximity to Portugal. Um, you know, historically, <laughs> you never ever see colonialism in like a truly positive light, but it does seem like Portugal was a bit more favorable towards that particular colony than many of the others that they held during the time of, you know, Portuguese imperialism and European imperialism, period. And I mean, you see some of that in that there wasn't any kind of angry, abrupt change of power. You know, Cape Verde, from just what I've read, was kind of like, well, we have entered a period of time (laughs) where our economy can be separate from yours and our money can be separate from yours. And it just seems like it's time to be our own nation. And they were. Um, So I think that... (laughs) Because of that, there's weirdly not this like as much like fist shaking as I even feel mm-hmm. like is warranted <laughs> uh, <laughs> towards the Portuguese and from Cape Verdean culture as a whole. And in terms of things that were brought over that were kind of mainstays, at least in my family growing up, um, there was a whole lot of little like bits and pieces of Criolu sprinkled throughout experiences with the elder family members, especially. Um, I actually get really worried because now that we have lost almost everyone from my Nana's generation, um, there's not really a lot of folks, at least in my section of the family, that are kind of the holders of those pieces of language. But, you know, phone calls with my Nana every Sunday, we would always greet her uh, with a como busta, asking how she's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she would, of course, ask us. And if the answer was not stabum, which is I'm fine, uh, then it would become a conversation. So you almost always wanted the answer to be I'm fine. <laughs> so, so you can move on and talk about other things. Um, a, lot of, a lot of little things. I mean, I remember uh, my Nana and two of her siblings all occupied different floors of a walk-up apartment in Boston, in Dorchester, Dorchester. (laughs) And there would be some nights when I would go and like stay the night with my aunt Priscilla downstairs just for fun. And she would, you know, we would recite the Lord's prayer in Criolu before going to sleep. Um, Cape Verdeans by and large, very Catholic people. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Portuguese for (laughs) instilling that. And there would just be, yeah, a lot of little, lot of little bits and pieces and odds and ends uh, that I didn't realize I was so lucky to be experiencing, and I wish that I had experienced more. Um, I know in terms of food, uh, jag or uh, jagasid 
is the traditional Cape Verdean rice and beans. Uh, a lot of, especially like Afro-Latino cultures have like a very specific rice and beans dish and it just tastes like home. Sometimes when I am really missing New England or really missing my Nana, it's just like, oh, well, okay, time to start soaking some red kidney beans because we are having Jag for dinner if it is the last thing that I do. Um, oh my gosh. I miss going to like the Cape Verdean uh, like National Day Parade over the summers. Uh, I used to go when I was a lot younger. And then I think it has to be during the Ohio school year. Like that has to be what happened <laughs> is uh, I stopped going to the new school with its fun flexibility <laughs> and it's starting later in the year <laughs> and suddenly wasn't able to go anymore to that festival, which was just such a big outpouring of love and culture and, you know, family members that you don't get to see all the time. And I don't know, there's a, there's kind of like this disconnection that I am now as an adult fighting against very hard. Yeah. Um, you know, Duolingo now has flashcards for basic Criollo and I go mm -hmm. and I practice them, uh, you know, a couple times a week. And, you know, even though I'm just like wishing someone a good morning by saying bon dia, you know, it just, it like creates this warm little hum <laughs> in your heart. <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah and while you were talking I was thinking a little bit about how in some ways although I think a little bit less for me kind of the analogous place in my life was Yiddish actually like a couple of words here and there a couple of things I mean it was my grandmother's first language but but I think in Whoa. that way it, yeah and she had her own story where she first went to school and then um, after her first day of school, she never spoke another word of Yiddish again, apparently with her parents, because, you know, assimilation was really important. Absolutely. I, uh, the coolest thing and the thing that I'm so jealous of is that I have very young cousins who got to learn Cape Verdean Criollo in school as like kindergartners, wow. because in Massachusetts, there's been this like recognition and, you know, the Cape Verdean population is big enough there that there are schools that have recognized the importance of practicing that language, of teaching a new generation that language, especially because a lot of these are children of children of people who didn't want to be speaking Criollo out and about because exactly, it didn't, it didn't let you assimilate. It, it right. marked you as more of an other than you already seemed just by the color of your skin alone. Um, I remember at our last family reunion hearing that some of my like really little cousins were taking Cape Verdean Criollo classes. And I was just like, oh, I'm so <laughs> jealous, but that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, totally. And a question. Um, yes. For those who might have never heard of Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> what is the significance? First of all, what kind of amazing, incredible place is it? I've always wanted to come visit you. Maybe one day I will. Um, so what kind of place is it and what does it mean to you? And what kind of broader significance does Martha's Vineyard have, actually, in America? Absolutely. Well, first of all, please come with me <laughs> at some point in time <laughs> in the near future. When the world is safe again, please come to Martha's Vineyard with me. 
Um, for, for those who don't know, because most don't, uh, Martha's Vineyard is a small, oddly hat-shaped island uh, <laughs> just south of Cape Cod, you know, just south of the little hook that comes off of the state of Massachusetts into the Atlantic. And Martha's Vineyard is significant to me for a number of reasons. For starters, it is where I spent huge swaths of my summers growing up. Uh, my parents had a house, still have a house, no past tense necessary, um, <laughs> in one of the, the bigger towns on the island. So I spent so many summers, uh, embarrassingly, I spent a lot of them just like in the library or in transit to and from the library between, you know, between our house and the library and picking up books and reading them in a corner of my bedroom in our pretty toasty wooden cottage <laughs> in the middle of summer while my family members were doing other things. Um, but my <laughs> mom's side of the family, uh, two of my cousins, uh, the, the daughter and son of my mom's older sister, both have houses that are five minutes a, you know, a five minute walk from our doorstep max. And that's if you're like being kind of lazy. If you high step it, you can be there in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, her older sister, my mom's older sister, now lives there year round. And she's like just across the field from us. So for me, Martha's Vineyard is very much a time, uh, a place for gathering, a place for seeing family, uh, a place for catching up. But another reason why it is significant outside of just the realm of my family is because there is a very strong history of affluent Black Americans um, and affluent, you know, Black immigrants vacationing there because they were welcome. Um, and they it's not because they were the only group there. Uh, it was just a kind of beautiful, strange for the time uh, culture that was occurring there going back to the 1800s, back when it first kind of became a bit of a destination for mainland folks. Um, and that is just, it's so cool that that has persisted into the modern day. Um, there are a lot of Black families of prominence who have property, have houses, on the island, I mean, the Obamas have a house on the island now after vacationing there for several years during their presidency um, because there's just this very rich history of this happily integrated community. Yeah. And just before we've been talking quite a bit about your mom's side of the family, I was wondering you were talking about how genealogy and tracing family history on your father's side is difficult and comes right up against kind of the historical problems that were baked into the nation's founding um, from both sides, right? From the Black side and from the Native American side. I was wondering, though, if there are concrete traditions and what are some of the, the cultural legacies that were passed on from your father's side of the family that are important to you and that have shaped who you are? Oh yeah. So like a lot of like a lot of black American families, a lot of the traditions and the way that I experienced a lot of tradition within my dad's side of the family was food. Um, you know, gathering for Thanksgiving at my Auntie Catherine's house, 
every year and having like very quintessential soul food interspersed amongst the very quintessential Thanksgiving meals, um, the collard greens, the black eyed peas, um, you know, the, the yams, a lot of, a lot of like the, the little bits and pieces of history and culture that I have been lucky enough to experience from my dad's side of the family have been in the form of food. Um, and that's another case where I wish more than anything that I had taken more time with a lot of my dad's siblings to just like get to know them better. Um, cause with my dad's side of the family, he had a few siblings that did live in Cincinnati like we did. So we got to see them much more frequently. Um, but some of his siblings were, you know, kind of flung, you know, here and there. And after about, God, like 10 years of just like tragedy after tragedy, out of all of my dad's siblings, I believe my dad was one of seven, one of eight. Um, my dad's the last sibling, one tether, the one connection to his entire side of the family um, in that generation. And that then just, you know, prompts me to just like ask my dad lots of questions (laughs) about his, about his youth and, you know, his own life experiences when I, you know, when I get to see him or whenever we're on the phone. Um, because you kind of, you know, I'm trying to learn my lesson, uh, that I have learned from kind of taking a lot of other past family members' presence for granted much more than I should have. Um, And I know from stories he told me as a kid, when he would go and visit family in the South, things were still very fraught and very precarious and very dangerous while he was a kid. Because, of course, he came of age in the time of the civil rights movement, Um, which is just insane to think about. Everyone... Not everyone. A lot of folks would like to believe that the time of Dr. Martin Luther King was so long ago, and it was not. So many of our parents, um, especially for us like middle to like elder millennials, so many of our parents were already born at that point in time, and not just born, were like sentient <laughs> kids and teenagers at that point in time. And, uh, yeah, it just adds a whole additional layer. And I'm sure that, unfortunately, a lot of those memories that involved familial traditions with my dad visiting family, you know, visiting grandparents down in the South are also probably fraught with a lot of negative feelings, which would make sense as to why he doesn't, you know, chomp at the bit exactly to talk about them. Absolutely. So I'd like to talk about a project of yours, which is really quite remarkable, but something which strikes me, especially as someone who's known you for a long time, is how it finds a way to tie together a lot of strings of who you are, who you know yourself to be, and also learning more through a connection with the earth through this really pivotal connection that you were talking about, the legacy of food and the legacy of land. 
I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about what brought you to becoming Black Forager. Um, what that means, how you picked that name, and what you do. Perhaps we could start this with a short clip of some of your work. This leaf belongs to sassafras. This leaf also belongs to sassafras. This leaf also, also belongs to sassafras. Sassafras is confusing. The FDA once banned sassafras because they said you could get cancer from sassafras, but you'd have to eat like this whole tree of sassafras. Are you gonna eat this whole tree? But you can make tasty things from sassafras. Their leaves thick and gumbo. The roots flavor root beer. Their twigs can be boiled to make teas and syrups. The FDA only banned it because it can be used to make drugs. Don't do drugs. Oh my gosh. So, Black Forager, um, which I guess has kind of become a calling card. I don't want to call it an alter ego because there's like nothing alter <laughs> about it. It's just uh, a tiny part of me that's been like very quietly nurtured for most of my life that has now just burst into full-blown, what's the positive version of obsession? <laughs> <laughs> um, so for we'll we'll break that down first um black because i am black um forager <laughs> um foraging is the act of identifying gathering and preparing um like wild foods and plants out in the world uh and i have loved plants from a very young age uh, i don't know if natanya remembers this i hope that she doesn't but I like befriended a honeysuckle tree uh, out in the yard at our school when I was, mm, must have been four or five. I named her Priscilla after my aunt Priscilla. And so I've just had this, um, this connection to the land and the stories that it tells through the plants that are growing on it. Um, because the plants that are present are a really good way to answer some questions about things that that land has gone through. You know, honeysuckles show up where land has been disturbed and where someone who did not know what they were doing planted one close by, probably about 50 years ago as an ornamental. And now they're mm. everywhere. Everywhere. Um, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I, I think I was, before I could even put my finger on the fact that that storytelling was interesting to me, I was like obsessed with all of my mom's gardening books growing mm. up. Um, every book that she had on flowers and gardening and herbs, I would just like inhale them um, until my parents just started buying me my own or I would save up my allowance money and buy my own at the bookstore. And I've also always loved cooking. It's really interesting. It's like this coming together of yes. my parents' interests because my dad, while he does not do it as much as I feel like he should, dad, if you're listening to this, um, my dad is excellent in the kitchen. <laughs> wonderful cook, wonderful chef. Some of my best earliest memories are like, baking with him as a kid and that has stuck with me 
throughout my entire life. And my parents sent me to like culinary camp when I was eight because I wouldn't stop talking about cooking so I could hone my skills and not feed them bad food when it was my turn to cook things. (laughs) (laughs) So then, so the food side that comes from my dad's side of the family, which is interesting because a lot of, I feel like the culture that is passed down through my dad's side of the family also came in the form of food. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, my mom loves gardening. Um, she's a super cool businesswoman, but her way to kind of center herself and relax in between stressful weeks at work was to work in her garden. And from a very young age, my mom would quiz me on certain plants that she was growing. Um, she would occasionally point out weeds that she could identify that were edible or useful in some way, shape, or form. And young Alexis really just took those two things and smushed them together (laughs) and said, what if I used, you know, these plant identification skills that I'm accidentally honing by means of being quizzed by my mom and then combined it with this food knowledge that I have gained and that I have honed by like seeing my and watching my dad. And... (laughs) So now that I'm, you know, a fully realized adult or so they say and have time on my hands and the means to get out into the the woods, into the forest, I do. And I bring home lots of fun, tasty things after carefully identifying them all. (laughs) And then I just come home in the kitchen. I craft. It's like my cute little mad laboratory. And it's always been something I've enjoyed doing. About two years ago, I was really sick of bothering the people following my personal Instagram account with how many posts I was making about finding plants out in the world and bringing them home and cooking them because it was starting to happen more and more, Um, especially because I have like a really long walk from my house to the office where I work. Not now. Right now, the walk to the office is a walk downstairs. But usually... (laughs) And so that would just mean a whole lot of time, especially on walks home, like kind of wandering and meandering and gathering things and bringing them home to cook. So I made a separate Instagram page. And my boss at work, who is also very social media savvy and had a cocktail Instagram and a cocktail blog of her own, was just like, it's really cool and it's really interesting that you are a Black woman in this space that is very dominated by white men. You should, like, shout that out in the name of your page. And I was like, you know what? Cool. Yeah, let's just call a spade a spade. The name of this page is going to be at Black Forager. And the handle was born. And so for a year, it was really just a couple also plant nerdy friends following and a lot of other foragers from around the country. And, you know, we'd exchange information and exchange recipes. And it was a very small little community. Uh, I think this time last year, I maybe had 800 followers, period. And then I started making TikToks because I was bored and the world was shut down And I had to learn how to use TikTok for work anyway. (laughs) And so in March of 2020, I started making TikToks 
of the things that I was foraging, just for funsies. Didn't expect it to go anywhere. Uh, the app is just a really great little recording device, like, you know, recorder editor kind of built into one free application. And the cool thing about TikTok is you're not just limited to the people who are following you, seeing your content. They have this algorithm that pushes content out to hundreds of millions of people, depending on, you know, those people's interests. So I posted my first foraging video, closed my phone, because at that time I was lucky if I got 300 views on a video. And I came back to it the next day and it had like 40,000 views. (sighs) I was like, oh, 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 <laughs> well, this is surprising. And so I just started bringing my camera along whenever I was out foraging and kind of exuding the same <laughs> enthusiasm that I have for it, but usually kind of have to keep inside. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really interesting how that has resonated with people and I know a lot of folks have also just, it, it's surprising to see like a very loud uh, black woman in this space in which people usually associate white men, whiteness in general, um, just because of a very systematic uh, method of kind of excluding black folks, especially from narratives involving the outdoors and the United States. And I don't know. I guess it resonated with people. I'm as surprised as everyone else, if we're being perfectly honest. (laughs) And now here we are. Um, I have 450,000 followers on TikTok and 130,000 on Instagram and just shy of 100,000 on Facebook. And it's just me and my 600,000 friends just going for hikes in the woods, <laughs> eating fun <laughs> things after. And that's, that's Black Forager uh, from beginning to where we are now. Wow. That's so amazing. I can't say you left something out, but there's something that struck me that you told me when we were on one of our long, sporadic, wonderful phone calls a couple months ago which was actually the historical significance of being able to forage, what that actually means and who has been historically excluded from that. I had no idea. I mean, I knew and, and I would, I'd been listening to a wonderful podcast series called Seeing White by Seen on Radio. And at one point they talked about how loitering was turned into a crime and the ramifications of being able to punish people for simply being on public property which blew my mind. And I realized that some sort of similar systemic injustice was happening in terms of the food that's available for people to eat for free. So unsurprising, especially after the year that we have had in the United States, but there are some very, um, there's some very racist history behind a lot of the foraging laws, especially in cities And a lot of them were put in place to target poor people and to target people of color. Um, If we're going all the way back to right after the emancipation of the slaves, trespassing and gathering food on public land, on public property, uh, were not really offenses 
that were worth jailing over, worth more than a very like small nominal fine, if anything at all. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the eradication of slavery when white folks were suddenly like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. We were very okay with you guys adding to your meager meals with wild foods when you were working for us for free. But now that you're not doing that, I absolutely do not want you wandering on the fringes of my property, gathering things that I was not going to use in the first place, and using that to support yourselves. So suddenly, trespassing laws became very strong, very stringent. And moving a couple decades further, as uh, a lot of white folks decided that they wanted to be reclaiming and preserving natural spaces that they had just recently finished ripping out of the hands of indigenous peoples, uh, they also did not want the indigenous folks who had occupied that land or, once again, freed Black folks to be able to benefit from a lot of the resources that were in those areas. So a lot of conservation laws were put in place to keep people from going and, say, harvesting ramps off of a park's property. And ramps being a a type of wild onion, which actually have a very fraught history of their own. And it's insane because a lot of those laws are very much still in place. And I appreciate it when a lot of folks kind of approach them with, you know, rose-colored glasses. And it's like, oh, no, but those laws... They were put in place so that we don't hurt these beautiful, you know, natural spaces. And like, that was not the reason why a lot of those laws were created. And I'm just like, I don't know if you know this, but the indigenous folks were doing a really good job of stewarding those kind of relationships between land, people, and food. And it's really rude to say that a swath of land that's only maybe a generation removed from that stewardship right? has nothing to do with it Um, and that they can't continue doing it for fear of harming that space in some way. Um, It's always, yeah, really interesting to tell people. It's like, oh yeah, a lot of trespassing and a lot of foraging laws are really just more affluent white people a hundred years ago 120-ish years ago, like sticking it to poor people, Black people, and Indigenous people. Um, There is a park here in Columbus, which will remain nameless because the person who told me about it told it to me in confidence. But it's a somewhat popular park. um, And it also is pretty close to where a lot of our homeless population, you know, is and exists during the course of the year. And it has these three magnificent, productive pawpaw trees. And for folks who don't know what pawpaws are, they're the biggest uh, native fruit in North America. They're like these big custardy, almost like a mango-banana hybrid, very like calorie-dense, very special to uh, the Midwest and a little bit of the the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic area. And every time I go by those trees, I just look at them and ask myself why we're not prioritizing growing things that 
folks who are without homes or folks who are poor or just folks who want to take advantage of them can take advantage of them. Um, That conversation is starting to happen more in cities that are much more liberal than mine. Mm -hmm. Um, I know going and visiting Portland, Maine is always cool. They have a couple um, trees. I think they're called like the trees of 40 fruits. It's 40 different stone fruits grafted onto one tree that you're free to just go and visit and pull fruits from as, you know, the different branches of the tree come into fruition during the course of the growing season. And slowly but surely you're starting to see like edible food forests that are free to attend coming out of some spaces in the Pacific Northwest. And so I'm really hoping that the narrative around it changes, but that being said, it is still a very white and very white and kind of like affluent white dominated activity, which is weird. Like (laughs) access to free food should not necessarily be something that is beholden to that group of people, Uh, which is another reason why I think going by Black Forager is really important. Um, Asserting that the outdoors can also be our space, asserting that we also can possess this knowledge about our land and possess this knowledge about the plants that are growing on it and the fungi growing on it, Um, that we can also be holders of the story of the land that we're living on and be a part of that story ourselves. Um, So here's to hoping that some of those laws change soon um, because their history sucks, (laughs) for lack of a better word. Yes. We're definitely still in the midst of a health crisis as, you know, the Black community and cities as a whole, um, because a lot of times the food that is fast and the food that is nearby is not the food that's healthy. Yes. And I'm not saying that the solution to that is for all of us to drop everything and be like, see you later, McDonald's. I'm living off of the chickweed and the, you know, field garlic in my backyard now. Um, But it's absolutely a way to be supplementing your diet with some extra vitamins, some extra minerals, some extra fiber that you may not have been getting otherwise. So that's that's a focus that I'm hoping to have this year is that foraging is also definitely, it's kind of like a radical act of food access in a place where food access has not been deemed important enough by local leaders. Yeah. That's so important. Well, there's another thing that I wanted to talk to you about and and hear your opinion on um, as someone who has had a lot of experience with social media um, and also with the concept of, of creating something that then goes viral and that gets a lot of attention from people you know, from people you don't know primarily, and all different kinds of reactions. Um, this is quite a hard pivot in terms of what we were just talking about. When the Capitol was stormed by this mob of people who were you know, according to my reading of Trump's words incited by him, um, one of these people had been a colleague of the man who was writing the article. And one of the things that he was talking about, besides the radicalization and the different aspects that led him to going in that direction, was also just the sheer, um, the sheer power that 
he saw this man receiving from posts that resonated and from live streams and from kind of creating content that resonated wildly with far right groups. And I was just wondering, um, as my resident friend that I can phone who (laughs) has had experience um, with social media in this way, because there was one phrase from the article that really stuck with me. And it was, um, if you haven't had something of yours go viral, you'll never truly understand how powerful that kind of feeling is. And the point that he was making was that perhaps his colleague didn't even necessarily believe in his points of view so much. He just really needed to, like, it was an addiction. He really needed to get that affirmation from the base that he'd built. And so I was wondering if you, I'm sure that is absolutely not what you're doing with your base at all. And I know that your primary concern is the content that you're creating and that it be valuable and of use. And then secondary is who might or might not enjoy it. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit um, from your perspective about how social media and how kind of getting affirmation, getting confirmation from from social media can be something really powerful and can be maybe in some ways like a drug. Oh, gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it is really crazy how good you can feel when something that you have created is being consumed rapidly and by a large group of people. But I will also say it is absolutely insane how quickly that feeling fades mm. and how fast it is replaced by a feeling to uh, a feeling and a need and an urge to do it again. Hmm. Um, I have had to really stop paying attention to the numbers as much, especially on TikTok. Um, because the littlest, the littlest differences in your video can make the difference between whether or not the algorithm shows it to half a million people or whether or not the algorithm shows it to 50,000 people, like not even your entire follower base. Um, so I get how people can get sucked into it. I get how you can make one thing and have it go viral and then suddenly the only thing that you have on your mind is you know, what's, what's next? What's the next part of this story that's going to get all of those people's attention like this one did? Um, which is, I mean, I've taken a lot of time the last couple of weeks and have just been deciding what stories I want to tell this year. You know, what recipes I want to share, what plants I want to talk about that I think are worth talking about. Um, because it's very easy to get sucked into just being like, too analytical with your own content and piecing things apart and being like, well, I think this, 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 and this is the reason why these people like this video. So I'm just going to cold prescribe this, 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 and this to everything that I create for the rest of forever. And, and that's not the answer. I think people who are using social media solely for the purpose of going viral are just like setting themselves up not just for failure, but setting themselves up to be in a really bad headspace. Um, you know, I had to take a break from social media, period, like all of my different accounts back in December. Because um, it just, it'll start weighing on you and you won't realize that the weight is creeping up until it's almost too heavy for you to even bear it. 
Um, I have acquaintances who are also big personalities on TikTok who are in therapy now because this feeling of, I mean, I don't want to call it clout chasing, but this feeling of like chasing higher and higher and higher numbers um, it can lead to, it can lead to burnout. It can lead to depression. It can lead to anxiety. Um, so I'm really just, <laughs> I'm trying to come at things from a perspective where I'm just like, well, I'm proud of it. So I don't really care how the rest of the world receives it while, you know, still being on brand with the messaging of my overall page. But I mean, that's one of the things that I think scared me the most about like all the QAnon nonsense. So I'm like, someone behind this is like getting the biggest freaking rush of dopamine watching these statements that they are writing instantly like disseminate in these huge seismic waves across the internet. Um, and, you know, getting to see all of these people quoting it and sharing screenshots of it and changing their minds because of it. And I, I have to hope, <laughs> because otherwise I'll get too sad, um, that the person or people behind a lot of those just like got swept up and got carried away. And maybe now for the first time in months have been afforded the opportunity to take a step back and maybe go, whoa. Mm-hmm you know, oof, went a little off the deep end there. Well, and it it was just very recently. I mean, I think I was very aware of to what extent social media shapes the way um, that news is distributed and can, can rearrange, you know, who has access to what and ultimately who believes what. But it hadn't occurred to me until very recently that that same social media is also edging people farther and farther in terms of what even gets said at all. Oh, absolutely. Well, and have you had any kinds of reactions to Black Forager directly from social media users that was either kind of really challenging that you had to kind of work through to understand or that was really helpful and positive that helped you understand yourself better. I mean, what's it like to get so many reactions from complete strangers? Um, It is two parts invigorating (laughs) um, and inspiring. You know, it's wonderful when other folks, especially when other black folks give me the feedback that they're feeling more comfortable and more empowered in outdoor spaces like that is indispensable, like wouldn't trade that for the world. Definitely makes pushing my content to a large audience feel worth it, even when I'm apprehensive about it. Um, I will say my my most watched video, uh, which is a video on how to uh, process and eat acorns, uh, (laughs) made the rounds in a couple pretty conservative groups on Facebook a couple of months ago. And I, I'm humans just like are not built to receive hundreds of comments of negative sentiment in quick succession in a short period of time. What's anti-conservative about processing acorns? Sorry, I just. Oh, I mean, nothing. I think honestly, we've gotten to this weird point where they're just like this, like makeup wearing, loud black woman who 
black woman who doesn't sound the way I expect her to is trying to teach me something and I'm uncomfortable and just, and watching every single one of those people come to the original video and tell me exactly why they were uncomfortable. Uh, Mm. That was, that was a lot. That was a very big reason why I took my break from social media. Um, It's a very big reason why I'm now not checking my comments as much, which is heartbreaking um, because some of the comments are fantastic and so kind and inspiring or, you know, people checking back in and saying, Hey, I did the thing that you talked about. Like, here's the finished result. So I, I want to be able to exist in those spaces, but dear God, if a man with a cartoon character profile picture, uh, decides to come and give me his opinion, not on my content, but on the space between my two front teeth one more time. I'm just going to close down the comments on Facebook forever. Just nope, none of that. Um, I will get a lot more questions about the legality of my foraging and the location of my foraging and whether or not it's on public or private property. And if it's on private property, did you ask the person? It's on public property. Are you allowed? What are the rules there? Do you have a permit? Like I get that so much more often than my white counterparts. Even some of my white counterparts who I absolutely love who will full on admit to foraging in parts where it is explicitly and very publicly against the rules. And I will not see anybody calling them into question. I will not see anybody calling their morality into question or telling them that they're going to get in trouble or telling them that they shouldn't do it again. Um, whereas for me, I'm hard pressed to, pe- to post a video of me outside or a video of me just like gathering that doesn't get at least one comment. And I hate that it always comes from white men, but it always comes from white men. Um, asking me what my credentials are and if I'm allowed to be in that space. Right. All these people who get to be policemen on their spare time, right? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Because when you're sitting back behind your Homer Simpson profile picture, (laughs) um, you're not putting yourself on the line in any way, shape or form. You just get to yell and yell and yell uh, and never have to worry about really getting anything back. Well, you talked a little bit about this at the beginning, um, or you mentioned it, that your job also entails social media. Do you want to talk a little bit about your profession and about what what you've been up to and about BarkBox? Yeah, absolutely. So I work for a company uh, called Bark, and we're best known for BarkBox, which is a subscription service for dogs. <laughs> I feel like I have to say the tagline now, so our um, our team will be proud of me. Um, it's two toys, two treats, and a chew every month with a different theme delivered to your doorstep. Um, and as a lot of us who have existed on the internet for the last God, couple of decades now um, have seen animal content and animal memes are a very heartwarming, very still like unpoliticized section of the internet. And I am lucky enough as the social media manager for Bark that during my day, I'm like wheeling and dealing in dog memes <laughs> and <laughs> content centered around dogs and all of the really cool, like truly inspired and imaginative toys that we design in-house and send to them. 
so yes, uh, my eyes are irreparably broken. Um, I'm going to go blind before I turn 50 because I am looking at a screen, be that my laptop or my phone, most hours of the day, either for work or for my own uh, content and hobbies. <laughs> and it's, it's really cool and it's very interesting since we were just talking about, you know, the way that people perceive me when they can see my face on the internet. Um, the assumptions that people make about who I am and who my team is when they're only interacting with our content without seeing our faces is always very funny and very interesting to me. Everyone thinks we're men. Everyone <laughs> thinks that because they find us funny, we we have to be men. Like. <laughs> Every single time, it's always just like, I want to be friends with the guy running BarkBox. And I'm just like, we are all women. Our entire team is female. Our entire <laughs> team. <laughs> you got to cut it out. Um, and sometimes, sometimes I will say that in all caps as BarkBox back at <laughs> um, And they get defensive every single time without fail. <laughs> um, and... So it's very interesting to be dealing in the realm of virality when my face is not attached to it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I will say, even in the realm of dog content, which is usually so sweet and so wonderful, and you would think no one would have any complaints about it, they do. Uh, the internet is full of a lot of very angry people <laughs> right now. <laughs> Um, I just sleep a little better at night because it's people being mad that I had the audacity to call a German shepherd with dwarfism cute um, instead of people telling me uh, that I need braces. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's very interesting viewing the internet from these two little like portholes on different sides of the ship. <laughs> yes. Yes. I think... Yeah, working on BarkBox, sometimes I get sad because, you know, people, their first guess would not be that me and my team are the people behind it. Um, but sometimes it is really nice to get to hide behind a cute picture of a dog and not be putting yourself out there every single time you send something that you have created out into the world. Yeah, that's really remarkable. Yeah, to have those two different facets. So I wanted to talk about a couple more things, just kind of wrapping up the conversation. First of all, culturally speaking, in terms of how you see yourself, how you define yourself and how you know yourself in terms of the cultural influences and kind of even the names or the ways of thinking that you have for yourself. How has that changed between when you were a child or first started thinking and where you are today? <laughs> well, oh, my goodness. It has been quite the journey. Um, I definitely think the through line through all of this, through my identity, from the second that I could kind of recognize my identity and rep, you know, recognize uh, a separateness from other groups growing up is that I am Black. Like, that is the, the through line through everything. That is the box that I check on my census every 10 years. It is the box that my parents check on their census every 10 years. It is the box that my sister checks on her census. Um, so if someone was just to ask me one off, you know, if I'm filling out a <laughs> piece of paper, black would be my identifier, of course, 100% through and through. 
Um, it's really interesting because I feel like as a child, I was dealing with a lot of internalized racism. And there was this excitement about otherness within the Black community that I feel like a lot of folks still uh, are dealing with, are working with, where you want to be more exciting. Like you don't want to just be Black. So for me at that point in time, knowing about my Cape Verdean heritage and having just like the thinnest of threads holding on as a tether to my dad's indigenous heritage, I was just like, oh, well, you know, I'm Black, but like, I also have indigenous heritage, you know, through the Iroquois nation. Um, and I'm also Cape Verdean, which is like, essentially, like, almost you know, Afro Latina. And like, that's so not, (laughs) which is so not true. I was just like, so eager to identify as anything other than black, because it felt like black meant that you were going to be put in a box. And it was a box that it would be very hard for you to remove yourself from with other people after they had already identified you as black, be that Uh, if it's in, you know, an in-person setting or in a digital setting, because, you know, us coming into, us coming of age in the realm of, like, AOL Instant Messenger, in (laughs) the the realm of, like, chat rooms and uh, MySpace and early Facebook, I had this, like, feeling to be like, no, 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 but I'm, but I'm different, but I'm special. (laughs) You, you're going to try and put me into this box. I can feel it, but don't do it. <laughs> and that just, that led me to, I think, like overblowing my identity when talking to people. And I also used to be like really weird about talking to other Ohioans and saying that I was from Ohio, even though I spent a lot of time in Massachusetts. I wanted to be from anywhere but here in high school and in college because I stayed here for college. I was just like, ah, oh, everyone here is from Ohio. I was like, I had an interesting child. I had an interesting childhood, though. Mm, pick me. Um, and it's not until I've gotten older that I've realized a myriad of things. Uh, one, even if you do have indigenous heritage, if you do not have the cultural ties, the very real cultural ties to that heritage, maybe don't be uh, just like telling that to people. Don't be introducing yourself as an indigenous person when that is not something culturally (laughs) that you can claim. Uh, You know, my Cape Verdean heritage is wonderful and it's beautiful and has so much lovely and magically traceable history. But it's interesting how I feel like I've come to this full circle where I'm just like very comfortable. I just identifying as black because I truly believe we are entering this period of time where I hope black folks will start being afforded kind of like the same blank slate that white folks are given, if that makes any sense, where you can be introduced as a black person and it will not immediately attach a slew of assumptions, associations, and stereotypes onto you. Um, because our community contains multitudes, just like every other community. And I will say a great thing about social media is it's really helping people realize that, both people within the community, because I will say, um, as a kid, 
being a little weird. And even now, some of my loudest critics are other people in the Black community. Um, people who are still very much entrenched in the, there is a, there is a way to be Black and it is not, and that's not it. Um, right. You know, pointing at me. Um, but also some of my loudest cheerleaders are within the Black community. So I, I really hope that especially with the advent of the internet and everyone seeing people from all over of all different backgrounds being interested in all different things, we're really entering this period of time where you can just say you're Black and the people who are worth their salt will, will stick around and find out everything else there is to know about you. Yeah, and much like Meghan Markle, who you were telling me about how much it meant to you that she married Prince Harry, I know that you are meaning the same thing to people out there right now who didn't realize maybe what foraging is, who didn't think that they could be foragers, who didn't think that it was safe or that it was maybe cool or just didn't know where to start. Exactly. Alexis, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this conversation so, so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. And talking to you is always a joy. Like I, ever since we were kids, just sitting and talking with you for extended periods of time is one of the joys of my life, Natanya. Well, we've got this one on record. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. For unlimited playback. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime I'm missing you and you're busy, I can listen to it. The Extra Half is created and produced by a small but dedicated team. Thank you, Silvinas Brazauskas and Jasmine Jones. Would you like to get involved? You can send us a message at theextrahalf at gmail.com or support us at patreon.com slash theextrahalf. If you've gotten this far, please press pause and go rate or review the podcast. It would mean a lot to us. You can also find us on Facebook and on Instagram. Don't forget to share your favorite episode with a friend or a family member or on social media. I'm Natanya Hoffman. You've been listening to The Extra Half. Take care. Until next time.